We're coming to the end of uh, the full day of our weekend retreat. I'd like to, uh, with Mahesi, to take the opportunity to reflect a little bit on what we've been uh, contemplating this uh, around this activity uh, of, of mindfulness, remembering, remembering to be here, remembering to be present. So it will be... Uh, a stereo Dhamma talk, I'll say a bit, and Mahesi will say a bit. <laughs> and we may li- like that, or we may not, or we may want to hear a talk, or we may not want to, or we, we Mahesi and I, might want to give one or might not want to. <laughs> All these different reactions and feelings that we can have around the process of a day, the unfolding of the day, how we interpreted it. Uh, the experience, particularly as one giving a talk very personally and then trying not to. <laughs> so it's better to be able to communicate. I, um, I'm reminded of um, one of the first Dhamma talks I heard, which was from one of my teachers, Ajahn Chah, who was a Thai forest master. He's passed over now. Um, in 92, so it's quite a, a while ago, 16 or so years ago. But when he was still alive and uh, teaching, uh, one of the things that happened is he came to the UK, came to England in 1976 on an invitation to, to teach. And at that time I was practicing on a retreat very similar to this, a 10-day retreat to the center. And he came and he, he gave a Dhamma talk and there was a translation because he spoke in Thai. And um, I was very inspired listening to the talk. And as I was listening to it, I, I kept you know, feeling how, how good it was. How, how he was a very dynamic and powerful teacher. And uh, throughout the talk, I kept you know, com- having this internal dialogue that would be going on, commenting on what I was listening to. In that case, in a positive way, I haven't always commented in a positive way on some of the Dhamma talks I've either given or listened to, but anyhow. And at the end of the talk, Ajahn Chah just said, well, if you've been sitting here listening to this, thinking it's good or bad, you haven't been listening properly. And I thought, well, that's really very good. <laughs> so this is quite a profound thing to say. This, you know, How can we listen beyond our reactions, beyond... You know, we, we, we have a perception about ourselves or about our experience and through that perception or through that view we, we either open up or shut down or judge uh, and diminish perhaps the possibility of a fuller relationship, a fuller inquiry into to what's actually present. So this activity of mindfulness is very much connected with this practice of listening, listening beneath and beyond our conclusions, our assumptions um, about ourselves, about life, about each other, about how we think it might be, and just keeping this, in a way, a, a sense of openness so we can have the possibility of, uh, of learning and, and receiving um, this life in a more dynamic way than, in a, than through our filters. So I found this teaching of Ajahn Chah uh, very helpful. 
Um, not only in that particular circumstance, but as I've continued in life and I've, I come against my own limitations and my own views and where I shut down this encouragement to just keep opening and trying to listen a bit more deeply to a deeper current in life, a deeper flow. And usually because the assumptions that I make, you know, particularly if they're negative, they, they, they disallow the possibility of something deeper that might have a lot of goodness in it, a lot of um, innate wisdom in it. So this mindfulness, I, I really have been reflecting today, we've been looking at different aspects and facets of it, and in many ways it, it is like a, a multifaceted jewel. We can understand it as a, as, a, as, a, as a method or a technique or something we do. We're being mindfulness, we're doing mindfulness. But it also has these, these which is true. We, it's, it's uh, you know, the, as the essence of the, of the path of awakening, as the, the medium through which transformation comes about, to be mindful is to quicken the process. So it is something that we apply. You know, there is some effort to apply moments of mindfulness. So there is a sort of a, an aspect which has a dimension of doing about it. But it also has these other f- facets to it that, uh, that have not only uh, the, the, the activity but also the receptivity. Mindfulness is to, to bring attention to what is but it's also to receive what is for the sake of contemplation, for the sake of illumination, for the sake of inquiry. So, so these different ways that we can hold and turn a jewel and see the light f- um, touching and illuminating different aspects. So for my um, reflections tonight, I would like to come back to some of the facets and dimensions that we've been contemplating and touch into them again tonight um, before I hand over for Mahesi to reflect for us tonight. And I think it's the, the, first, this, the first aspect of, of mindfulness is really coming into relationship. It's a bit similar in the similar flow of what I've just saying of learning to listen, but to really learn to be in relationship with the actuality of life rather than how we we feel life should be. And again, I'm I'm reminded of another story connected with Ajahn Chah, our our meditation master, which was uh, concerned one of his Western disciples, um, Ajahn Menindo, who some of you might know. He runs a small monastery on the Scottish borders, a very fine teacher and, and monk, practitioner. And when he was a young man, he went to Thailand to practice, and of course, when one starts off sometimes in meditation practice, one's very idealistic, particularly if you become a monastic. <laughs> you tend to, to be very idealistic about how monasteries should be, how you should be as a meditator. And, and you project that very powerfully onto yourself and environment. And, and obviously, eventually, one realizes one can't always live up to the ideals and has to become more realistic. So one of the things that... that um, Jimenindo was very idealistic about was his ability to sit cross-legged as a meditator. I mean, that's the sort of thing you should be able to do as a monk, to be able to sit down and cross your legs. But he had this problem because he'd had a motorbike accident when he was very young, and he, his knees 
were damaged. And in the end, he had to go into hospital in Bangkok in Thailand and have this, this, this operation on his knees, which took him out of action and he couldn't uh, practice and he was laying up in hospital and he was in plaster and he was feeling really miserable about the circumstance he was in. And during this, this, this time that he was in hospital, Ajahn Chah came to visit him. And he came over to his bed and said, you know, how are you doing? And, and Menindo went, Ajahn Chah, it shouldn't be this way. And Ajahn Chah leaned over and he said, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. If it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. And so, you know, again, I mean, Ajahn Chah, this very earthy wisdom, but how much, do, how much energy do we use in our life projecting onto our experience this sense of it shouldn't be this way, it shouldn't be raining now, it shouldn't be noisy today, I, shouldn't, I should have had a more peaceful experience, and the retreat shouldn't be as it is, and, and you shouldn't be as you are, and my partner should be different, and my work should be different, and I should be, and it's true, <laughs> it's true, it should all be very different than it is. <laughs> it should be nicer and, you know, easier somehow. And, uh, and it's, it's, you know, there are moments when it's exactly how it should be, but there's a lot of time when it's not how we think it should be. So this is one of the illusions that we sort of operate under, this, this you know, constant projection that we have onto ourselves, which dislocates us from the activity, from, the, from a more direct relationship to how actually it is. This is how it is. This is how life is. It's like this. You know, it's just like this. It's not ideal. It's real. It's teaching us. It's reality all the time. And so if we don't have any mindfulness, we we don't have any way of connecting with the reality of, of what is. We're just reacting from this projective tendency of the mind, which can be very insensitive and very cruel, particularly to ourselves, because we're constantly projecting onto ourselves often how we should be and particularly if we pick up something about mindfulness now not only should we be you know the successful stunning kind of person but now we should be mindful as we're doing it you know and it becomes this the mindfulness as again as Menindo said mindfulness just becomes this prison sentence you know now I've got to be mindful (laughs) and it becomes a, a burden and something that's a little heavy so this, this replace, so one facet of the jewel of mindfulness is really learning to replace you know, our, our deluded, often, um, projections into a, something that where we can actually accept and open and allow life, whatever it brings to us, to teach us, to reveal its nature to us, both in its light and in its dark in its happiness and unhappiness, in its moments when everything is going successfully and flowing and fluid, and in its moments when it's chaos. You know, we, we, we begin to, to demand less of you know, things have to be perfect for us to make me happy. We can become more... Uh, we, we constrain mindfulness. When there's the capacity for mindfulness, it strengthens strengthens our ability to meet the actuality of life 
So we practice, you know, as we've been doing today in the first foundation of mindfulness, often the place where we project a lot is on the body, how the body should be less painful usually. Um, perhaps younger, older, thinner, fatter. You know, always something, isn't it? It's not quite how the body should be um, according to the ideal that's projected so powerfully in our in our culture. And when we relate to the body again from from this this uh, this. Uh, this distortion, it's, it's, a, it's very unkind. You know, so in the first foundation of mindfulness, we're just getting used to replacing this activity of, of, of reacting to how, you know, from this place of how it should be. We're replacing it with this capacity to, to meet the body, meet the breath, both in terms of the external form of it, how we feel and experience the form, and then the inner energetic flow of the body the impression, the flow, the feeling tones. And as we do this, we can begin to see, the, you know, and as we go on as the, in the sutta, in the teaching that the Buddha encouraged in contemplation of the body, we begin to contemplate its actual nature, what's under the skin, the organs, the, the different aspects of the body that perhaps aren't so pretty to look at but the reality of the body, we begin to contemplate it as elements, as heat, as cool, as solidity, as water. And as we contemplate that way, we begin to see the body has the same nature as everything else that's compounded. The rain, the plants, the sun, the trees, the animals. It's a, what, what one would call dhamma. It's nature, it belongs to nature. It's not our personal possession ultimately. So mindfulness brings this understanding and allows us to relate rather from, from idealization of the body or ignoring the body or uh, fascination with the body or disgust with the body or more subtly the, the body, the, the self-bodies, the self-structures, how we experience the self. We begin to relate to the experience of our being from this place of receiving the actuality of how it is, the breath, the body. And it allows, it allows this more deeper kindness, acceptance, openness. And then another important facet of mindfulness is discernment, to discern, to know. To know fundamentally one of the things we've been uh, contemplating today is to, um, you know, as we say, working with the breath. We're using the breath. Breath is one of the foundations of mindfulness that's the most commonly taught, that we bring attention to breath. And as we work with the breath, we begin to notice body within breath. We begin to, to... to be able to bring attention to follow the breath within the experience of our embodiment. And as is encouraged in the sutta, as we do this, the encouragement is to, to take 
the attention, to withdraw the intention as a skill that we can cultivate, to withdraw the attention from places where we can dwell in our mind, in our heart, that leads to the perpetuation of stress and suffering and discontent and dis-ease, a lack of ease. You know, the, the mind without mindfulness, without a training of mindfulness, there's a tendency a bit like gravity. It would just fall to the habitual patterns, fall to tendencies of worry, of, of anxiety, speculation, of um, hankering, worry. You know, go, it sort of just tends to go into these grooves or these patterns or habitual places which is fine if they're positive, but they're more problematic if those places are, are, um, create stress and suffering for us. So this training, the training of the, the, the mindfulness is to take the attention, take the attention from the withdrawal in the first aspect of the suttas we were saying earlier, to withdraw deliberately attention uh, from the tendency to... to uh, hanker and to long and to feel disappointed and to grieve over the world. Said so how the Buddha lays it out. You know all the things that can upset us. Many many things that we can think about. We can sit here and think about how you know everything is going wrong in the world or how everything we're in the edge of chaos or how we're in the edge of of um, you know, global eco collapse. <laughs> and all of that may be true and probably is true. You know, but it doesn't necessarily help to sit here worrying about it. You know, it's not, it's not to say that we shouldn't respond, but if we respond from a place of fear or contraction or worry, then our response won't be so effective, it won't be so powerful. So to learn to take this skill in, in attention or training of mindfulness, to take the attention from those places of worry, fear, anxiety, hankering, longing, grief, disappointment for the nature of the world, for how it actually is again, and bringing bringing to something we can really know here and now, breathing in and breathing out. So then the Buddha goes on to say, breathing in, breathing out, experiencing the whole body. So we train with the breath to experience. You know, often we feel ourselves sometimes just to be our thinking. You know, and then we we you know we. Uh, realize that our, we become very disconnected from our embodiment, which is you know, the, when we're more and more fully embodiment, we find we have this incredible inst- sensitive instrument that's, that's receiving information, that's intuitive, that's responding, that's dynamic, that's very alive. So this being within the body, experiencing the body, being with the breath, experiencing the whole body with the breath, and then the second... Um, dimension of the, the foundation of mindfulness with breath is tranquilizing the body, calming the body, not only the physical body but the mental body, the heart body, through this activity of careful attentiveness to the breath. Suffusing the body with not only, because as we bring breath, attention to breath within body, we start to suffuse the whole body, the whole being with this fullness of awareness which has this capacity, as Mahesi was saying earlier, of light. So the body actually you know, alchemically cha- begins to change. The experience has there's more and more depth of embodiment and bringing attention with breath into our embodiment. 
feeling within the body, full, fully within the body, with this breath, this opening into the body, we start to feel the energetic change, a, a lightening, an opening, body of mind and heart or the jitta, the mind being connected and, and a dimension of body or body being a dimension of mind, we begin to feel the mind's energy which has been so dispersed and fractured and worried about this and depressed about that and off into some other fantasy, pulled along by, compelled by some uh, unconscious habit, we begin to feel the gathering, the power of the heart and the mind to gather and to gather into its own nature, into its own fullness and its own awareness, which is very blissful. It's very, very pleasant. As the Buddha said, there's no pleasure sensory pleasure that can surpass this experience of uh, tasting the gatheredness of our body, mind, heart, energies. When we gather around, so this is the function of mindfulness, moments of attention. It's not that we do it, we don't go and do that, the gathering. It happens as we practice more and more consistently moments of attention, moments of attention. And then with that power of gatheredness, we can turn maybe to the problems of the world, the problems. I mean, it's a very different relationship to meet what we're in contact with from that place of presence than to meet uh, some challenge that we have to face from a mind that's scattered and dispersed and fearful and fretful. And then as this discernment grows, we're working with the breath, this, this first foundation begins to give us a sense of well-being, access to well-being, access to innate peacefulness, access to this depth of presence. And then from there we can begin to discern what is the nature of the breath? What is the nature of feeling? What is the nature of thought? What is the nature of sensation? Actually, what is the nature of the rain that comes and floods and then turns to sun and then turns back to rain? You know, our assumptions, we begin to notice what is the nature of our assumptions about ourselves and about life? And what is the nature of the reality of life? And so as we discern and as we look more closely, we can begin to see that through this activity of inquiry, mindfulness, clear seeing, clear comprehension, you begin to see how the nature of everything that we experience has this, what's called anicca, this dynamic fluid flux and change. It's changing. Body's changing, the feeling tones are changing, the light as we sit here in uh, experience the evening drawing in is changing. And so the Buddha said, there's nothing that you can find within this compounded world, in the world of form, in the world of feeling, in the world of perception, in the world of sensory consciousness. There's nothing that you can find that isn't in the process of change, isn't in the process of uh, isn't impermanent, isn't under the influence of this lawfulness of impermanence. And yet we seek to try and find certainty and permanence in that which is changing. 
and then wonder why we feel this sense of loss and dissatisfaction and struggle and stress. So in the breath, as we, we, we use the breath to calm, to steady, to contemplate, but in moments of noticing the real nature of the breath, we can't really call it a thing, we could say the breath. But actually, with, with awareness and attentiveness, we notice it's dynamic. It's fluid, it's changing, it's arising and passing. Every thought, every feeling. And so the, the Buddha said that all compounded dharmas, all compounded phenomena is like all compounded phenomena is like uh, is like a dream it's like it's there and it's gone had a dream it arose and it passed away it's like a dream it's like a shadow it's like a bubble it's like a dewdrop it's like a lightning flash contemplate all dharmas thus all things thus and as we contemplate this, this nature of impermanence, the arising and passing, we can perhaps begin to notice that which contemplates, that which is just present, the awareness within which the arising and passing is emerging. Like these words that are emerging from this Dhamma talk and then they fall back into the silence the sound of the rain that's flickering. We can begin to notice that that all, all that we can objectively see, think, feel is arising and passing back into this quality of presence, this heart of presence, which just is, just here. So to give you uh, an image, in, uh, where where I spend most of my time living in South Africa, uh, we have we we live in um, my husband and I, Kitty Sorrow, and I live in one of the um, highest lightning areas in, in the world. We're on the edge of the Drakensberg Mountains, the Uchtlklumbo, as they're called in Zulu, which means the barrier of spears. They just rise up out of the land and they level off into the escarpment of Lesotho. It's quite a dramatic landscape. And there's a high catchment area of rain. Rain feeds into Hauteng and Joburg, big dams. And in the summer... We're now in the middle of winter, though it's totally dry, but in the summer, which is the winter here, we have these amazing lightning storms and thunderstorms, and the rain comes in like yesterday. I thought I was in Africa again. <laughs> Monsoon, just like that. It just turns your garden into a swimming pool in a second. and just sort of pounds down on the tin roof. And it's very dramatic. The weather's very dramatic. In the, and then sometimes you can have these, you know... Very hot days in the summer, it starts off 
the sky hasn't got a cloud in it, it's just blue, blue, blue sky. And then gradually at about midday, the little clouds start, like little fluffy cotton wool balls, they start to gather. And then it gathers and it gathers and it gathers and then it goes dark and dark and dark and then you get this really black ink sky like we had yesterday. And then it just cracks open and then you get these amazing lightning bolts and then the rain just pours. And then sometimes at night, the lightning goes into this, this kind of silent lightning. You know, the, cr- the big crashes die down. And you just see the, the lightning play in the sky, in the darkness of the sky. And in, in the mountains, because there's night, there's very little electricity, you just see this vast, dark sky with the stars. And then it lights up in this amazing display of lightning. So when you're, it's, it's wonderful to stand out and just look, and you keep looking at the lightning. Where's the next one going to appear? Where's it going to appear? Where's it going to appear? And then what you begin to recognize that each lightning flash arises in this dramatic, ex- extraordinary display, and then it dissolves back into this immensity of the sky, the dark sky which is just endless. And then after a while you recognize, you begin to open not only to the display of the lightning, and the, dis- the magical display of the arising and passing and the excitement of that, but then recognize the space and the immensity within which it's all happening. So when we're fixated on the, the nature of the world, you know, the the, the excitement of the experiences we have, where we're going, where we've been, what we've done, who we are, then we sometimes miss this immensity of the heart, that which is just simply present, within which every experience we ever had is arising and passing. So... So in its depth, mindfulness is really the doorway, being present here, here and now, and discerning the changing nature is also the doorway into recognizing the mind, the heart, the ground of the heart, the ground of the mind in its primordial awareness, in its presence, that which can receive and know in its knowingness, in its intelligence that which can receive and know this moment in its perfection for just as it is, here and now. The Buddha said, Mindfulness is life. Heedlessness is the path of death. Those who are aware are fully alive, while those who are heedless are as if already dead. The wise, being fully alive, rejoice in mindfulness and abide delighting in this capacity. So for these thoughts for our reflection tonight, may we all continue to delight in this wondrous journey of the heart as it awakens more fully through the practice of uh, sati, remembering our essential nature.
So good evening, everybody. It's a Saturday night in West Ogwell. It's quite a rave. <laughs> At least it's my idea of a rave. It's been um, sort of a rich offering today. It's, uh, it's quite a short retreat, so we've sort of been packing it in. So it's like eating Christmas cake in some ways. But the good news is you don't need to hold on to any of it. That's not what we are trying to encourage. We're simply, um, in a sense, demonstrating reflection, demonstrating the activity of reflection. It's interesting to reflect in, in, in our tradition that when somebody asks for a Dhamma talk, when you actually translate the chant that's made, uh, when a Dhamma talk is being requested, it's, really it says, um, Venerable Sir, Venerable Sister, please demonstrate Dhamma. It's not saying, please give me a lot of information about Dhamma that I can educate myself with. So that's what it's about. And so, you, you know, if you keep letting go, then, then hopefully you're not going to feel too, too full, too overwhelmed. So it's going to reflect a little bit more on this idea of mindfulness. I've got some sort of... I didn't think I did, but I think I... When I was speaking to Tanisra this evening, but I, um, as I was sitting here, I sort of remembered I, I have stories from my, my monastic life, I think, that are pertinent to the whole idea, uh, my personal development of mindfulness. And we don't tend to think in terms of you know, what mindfulness is and stories. We think often mindfulness is some quite technical, very sort of quite narrow, specific um, thing that we have to understand and, and apply. But um, for me, my understanding as the years have gone by, my sense of what mindfulness is about has grown bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It's become uh, un- unpacked, unpacked into something that, that really is uh, it's not that specific, it's not that graspable. Um, one of my favourite uh, reflections then on um, on the subject that it's a teaching of the Buddha, an essential teaching of the Buddha, in fact, that unpacks the subject very well is uh, his uh, teaching on uh, what he calls the five indriyas, uh, sometimes translated as um, uh, spiritual powers. Um, they're like pillars upon which that feed into the whole notion of mindfulness and give rise to the fulfillment, the, the full sort of mature manifestation of what it's about. Each one of those indriyas is, is, is a huge subject in and of itself. And they, they are in a specific order, and that order is uh, there for a reason. The doorway, the way to kick the door open really into this whole subject is through uh, the first of the indriyas, which is uh, in uh, Buddhist tradition is uh, sada. Um, and uh, uh, the sort of popular translation then of that word is uh, faith. And, uh, you know, our popular idea of faith then has to do with... Um, notions of having to accept some sort of belief that is transmitted to us by some sort of spiritual authority 
and um, uh, believe in it and derive some sort of solace from that belief. The actual translation of the word Sadhana Buddhism, though, means to give your heart over to or to entrust your heart over to what? To existence, to the, to the experience of existence. So uh, in order to give ourselves to existence, there has to be this element of trust. We have to trust that we're going to be okay if we give ourselves over to existence. And that's the trust and the, that, that grows, that's the deepening of faith that grows as a, as a result of the cultivation of mindfulness. My story is surrounding this subject. I've got a number of stories. We don't have time to go into them all, but I think um, the most significant and powerful event for me in my, in my learning about faith was when I'd <clears throat> been a monk for, um, I think, six or seven years. Living in a, um, I lived in a number of monasteries, but I, I was fortunate to be at a small monastery called Harnham whether uh, I was living with quite a smart monk who was my abbot called Ajahn Manindu. And um, I was, you know, a good monk. I thought I was a good monk. Uh, served, served the community, you know, and uh, did my duty and sort of got on with it. But um, around this time, I started to kind of act out more obnoxious than usual. You know, I, I, I kind of started to sort of say some rather inappropriate things and sort of get a bit kind of grumpy and moody and uh, just wasn't my usual self. I knew there's just something wrong and um, it's, it wasn't okay. My life was not okay. Something had to change. And... Um, I got this call from Ajahn Manindu to come, come and see him and uh, sort of formal meeting. And uh, he sat me down and um, said, um, I want you to leave the monastery. And um, he said, I'll give you a one-way ticket to anywhere you want to go in the UK. And... Um, I don't want you to come back until you feel you're ready. And that's quite something, especially when we can't handle money or we can't carry food, we can't cook food. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it made me feel very exposed to, to be chucked out the nest and sent out onto the road. And um, it certainly shut me up because I had to start planning because I hadn't really got intrinsic faith that I was going to be okay. I mean, if I were to tell you that tomorrow I'm going to give you a knapsack and send you out the door without any money and with no food and with a rule that you're not allowed to carry food, you can imagine how you might feel. So... um, I got on the phone to my mum. <laughs> yeah, got got up to Edinburgh, went on a shopping spree, getting all the kit, you know, the the sort of high tech sleeping bag with the Pertex covering, and 
I don't think the Marines made sandals, but I had to sort of get the best sandals. And uh, I made myself a shelter out of um, a sheet of nylon, but it was about the size of a tennis court. So, um, you know, I did everything that I could to prepare. And um, the day came, I managed to, to get a ticket to, to Italy. I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen in Italy. But um, off I went, and um, I travelled on my tra- tra- travel to Italy. I went with a, a, a very good monk called, uh, uh, a friend of mine called Supito, who tends not to be too perturbed by life. And uh, he, he noticed that I wasn't my usual self. He found me quite irritating to be around, actually, because I, I was agitated. I was afraid, although I, I probably couldn't admit it. But I was afraid. And so this is the stuff of faith. You know, this is, this is the territory. This is a territory of mindfulness. Because um, uh, the, the habit of withdrawing, retreating, retracting, not trusting in life, not trusting in existence, meant, you know, that I created a little cozy, sort of a little cozy life for myself. But also in that coziness, there was a tremendous claustrophobia which another part of me was reacting against. So I was living in comfort in a beautiful monastery and everything, but it just wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't right. You know, something had to grow in me, something had to mature in me. And um, there's this sort of period, you know, as, as I felt like I was approaching like a, a line that I was going to cross. You know, was, I was going to step over this line out of this safe world and expand out into this total unknown. I didn't know how I was going to eat. I didn't know where I was going to sleep. And um, I sort of, um, I mean, I... Uh, I'm going to compress the story, but I mean, I, 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 I you know, because I was off, I was uh, walking for months, <laughs> so you're not going to get the whole story. Um, but off I went, off I set, and um, interestingly, in fact, I've forgotten about this, but I, the, um, someone came out to join me from Scotland, an old friend of mine, and this is an interesting part of the story, because he was in insurance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And he was going through some life changes too. And he he was young. He was only like 21 or something. He was high up in this huge insurance company. I think it was, you know, that the widow one or, the, you know, that Widows International or something. And Scottish Widows. And, um, you know, he had his mortgage and his house and his his wage skills all sorted out. His future, he was completely sorted by the age of 23. But he really wanted to be a guitarist, a guitar player. So he was terrified to leave this secure life that he created for himself. And that's what he was bringing uh, with him on, on, on uh, the first part of the walk. He was only with me a couple of weeks, but um, it's interesting because he went through an important transition, transformation. And um, so, yes, off we went, and I mean, it was a, it was quite a story. I mean, it, the whole thing is just an amazing story. Uh, finding places to sleep, you know, God knows where, in someone's back garden in the middle of the night, surrounded by dogs and things. Uh, 
But what we both began to um, feel was that we were there was an intelligence that was directing and guiding the whole unfolding of the walk. And my heart and his heart began to trust that there was something um, there was something that is very easy to miss that, that there is that, that, that if you really uh, give your heart over in faith that the universe responds it gives back it responds in a way that is supportive and we began to see again and again the way for want of a better word, miraculous things would happen that I could never have anticipated. I ended up sleeping in, with lords and ladies and all. In, in, I also ended up in very horrible places too where things went wrong. But then there was always a reprieval. You know, if we got, if we got, if we had a very hard night and we got soaked then the next morning would be beautiful and sunshine we'd find a beautiful pasture where we could dry everything out and have a proper rest. In fact, at one point, and this is, this was, a, I mean, this has to be close to a miracle. We were on top of a mountain in the middle of Italy and believe me, Italians do not get out of their cars. I walked through the countryside in Italy and only saw one Italian walking in through the mountains. So we were stuck in, in very heavy storms on top of a mountain with, and we had run out of food. And there were just heavy mists, pouring, driving rain, nobody around. And um, we found a little uh, sort of mountaineer sort of shelter uh, uh, that we were sitting in. And then, um, then I heard this voice coming up through the mist, only mad dogs and Englishmen would be out in a day like this. And then suddenly these Land Rovers started appearing, kind of crawling up the side of the mountain, and it was some English touring company that had arranged a picnic for their people at the top of the mountain. And so, of course, there we were, two sort of bedraggled-looking folk, and... um, you know, I came literally. You know, literally these sort of the hampers with the chicken and the, and the red wine and all of this. And of course, they left us a ton of it. And so there, suddenly, I was sitting on top of this mountain in the middle of Italy. You know, with this feast. And this is the sort of thing that that happened again and again. Very inspiring. And w- w- it enables the heart to begin to relax. Now, this is a this is an expression of the cultivation of faith on an external level, but also, you know, as the Chinese say, as above, so below. We can say, as it is on the outside, so it is on the inside. When a difficult feeling or a difficult sensation arises within us, the difficulty we have in meeting it with faith is we don't believe it is going to be okay. We don't believe that feeling it fully and absolutely granting release, giving our heart over to it fully, is going to be okay. And so in your meditation practice, in your sitting practice, this is, 
This is the first lesson to learn. This is the first thing you begin to taste. You begin to experiment a little and notice how when something arises, it actually ceases and is not self. That is to say, that which arises, if we meet it in faith, does not determine or define who or what we are. So anger met in faith does not mean we become angry, it just means there is anger. This is just a a subtle but absolutely critical distinction. So that touches on the subject of faith. There's a story there on that, Indriya. You know, this is about mindfulness. You know, this is not just a narrow kind of like lasering my mind down on a sensation and, and seeing it as impermanent. It's more than that, isn't it? And there's three more Indriyas to go. <laughs> so, I don't think I've got a story for every one of them, luckily. Um, the, the next Indriya then that, that arri- comes into being in this progression is called Virya. There's things I want to say about faith, uh, but so let's just get to Virya. Virya is generally translated the idea as energy. You start giving your heart over in faith and you start to realize what we were talking about earlier, this, this, this kernel that is the jitta, this, uh, this essential mind, which is the quality of, of light and radiance and, 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 and presence. It's, it's, uh, it's a feeling of power that, that fills the body, begins to fill the body as you gain confidence that it's okay to be fully alive. You're not going to be you know, you're not going to be disorientated by it and, and overwhelmed because there's, there's a resolution, there's a ground that we, that we land on. So this is a very interesting area. Um, this virya, this, this, the image for it in, in, in Western imagery would be the warrior. Because the warrior, the warrior has this fearless energy that steps into or, or meets with confidence, with, 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 without fear, whatever it encounters, whatever comes into its territory. So um, with the, the idea then of uh, mindfulness, um, this is to do with boundaries. Warriors stand, you know, in Buddhist temples, the warrior image or the, or the statue, you know, the, stands at the gateway, at the doorway. It determines what comes in and what goes out in Tibetan Buddhism as the sword of discrimination. It recognizes, cuts through, it says, this is okay, this is good for the cosmos, this is good for uh, my mindfulness, and this is not okay because this is, this is going to cause havoc and destruction. And if need be, I'll kill it. <laughs> if it uh, tries to, you know, defend what's just, what's right, what's good, defends the good. So, in terms of your meditation, then what what's happening, or in terms of your life, what's this about? Is when we feel overwhelmed by a mood, by a state. You know, you're lying on the bed, and you're like, my my life's a wreck. 
I'm a complete failure, you know, I'm a complete failure. That's, that's you know, I'm no good, I'm ugly, I'm getting old. <laughs> Nobody loves me and I'm done and poor. <laughs> so this is, uh, you know, this is, um, you've been invaded. That's what's happened. You've been invaded by... Uh, Entities, they've come into your space and they've taken it over. So the very energy that is 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 it is this brightness that goes towards and meets this content. You know, you pick yourself off the bed and you think, okay, I'm going to try and meditate, <laughs> <laughs> and you actually drag yourself over. To somewhere and you kind of sit upright and, and you open yourself to what's actually going on. You go towards it, you go to meet it. It's a power, it's a, it's, it's a power and there's a certain, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a nobility to it and a, and, a, and a virtue that is warrior-like. You know, the real warrior will go towards the enemy despite his fear and resistance. My story about this was I was taught... My first lesson and my first retreat with a monk called Ajahn Anando, also at Harnham. He was the abbot before Ajahn Anando, and he was a warrior. He was a marine from Vietnam. He had a big bullet hole in his head to prove it, which he wore with—I wouldn't say he wore with pride, but he was certainly, you know, he you know, it was clear for all to see he'd been in the wars. And he was my first inspiration, my first real teacher. Because, uh, you know, I was just a big softie. You know, a kind of public middle-class schoolboy with a Jewish mum. <laughs> and so I was like a lamb to the slaughter as far as he was concerned. <laughs> you know? Anyway, my first retreat, um, you know, the, the, these were the days when we got up at three in the morning and sat till ten at night. And, um, you know, for me to get out of bed in the morning, I had to bang my head on the floor <laughs> to wake myself up. It was that bad. So... Um, I don't know if what he did was very wise in the bigger picture, but to be honest, I don't, I, I'm grateful to him for it. But I did catch a very heavy flu during this retreat. And um, the other monk was so blissed out, he didn't even notice. He was just sitting there with a big smile on his face. He was completely oblivious to my predicament. Um, and Ajahn Anando, being the marine he was, thought this was an opportunity to toughen me up. So I had to sit there with flu. And, you know, I literally had snot streaming down my, my the front. I mean, it was horrific. And we, we used to have, in those days, the hierarchy thing was much more pronounced. So he, I can remember this so vividly, because he, he'd be sitting about two meters in front of me and about four meters above me. <laughs> staring down at me with a sort of wry smile on his face. And, um, but what it was doing was it was, it was 
strength it was a strengthening process i mean i i i stayed with this very heavy flu you know sitting meditating with it i met it so that actually even the very strong manifestation and condition of that flu i learned to see that actually there was this unconditional part of my mind that remained separate and distinct and and i could push it out of defining who or what i was and keep it out because ajana nanda mainly <laughs> <laughs> because otherwise I would have been in bed watching sex in the city or something. <laughs> so, yes, he he was a he was a good teacher for me. The So that's a mindfulness story, isn't it? That's more, you know, that's this is about cultivating mindfulness um but that's that's the very uh, the very aspect uh the warrior aspect you know the warrior endures pain fundamentally is willing to endure pain for the for for the, <laughs> to protect the good to to ennoble the good as I mentioned to Tanisra last night I mean it's amazing in our society we understand this on some level when princess diana died the representation of goodness of of blessing power of divinity in a way in our culture in our psyche how do they carry her to her grave on the back of a gun carriage I mean that is actually archetypally perfect but on superficial appearances it might strike strike you as odd but the warrior protects the princess the warrior protects the queen and the king and the and the and the generative power of the heart the good warrior that is so then you meet you meet the content of what's arising what's what's impacting you in 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 the way that i'm describing with a heart of faith with a heart that the, the generosity of heart that entrusts itself over to existence the strength of heart that goes to meet and take on the 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 force of 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 illusion that wants to these entities that want to take possession of our hearts and feed on its energy it's followed by um the strengthening of the third of the indriyas which is um not the third it's actually the fourth mindfulness is at the middle it's like a pivot it's like the The, 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 i really think of them as four because the four feed in to the mindfulness which is in the middle so it goes sadda virya sati and so but we're getting to the third one here that feeds into mindfulness which is samadhi 
in um, uh, I like to translate the word samadhi as serenity as a stillness a rootedness it's the quality of mind that remains unperturbed in uh, in the uh, you know as conditions change from good to bad from bad to good because of this this entrusting in 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 this faith quality this principle of faith this is the key the essential nature of mind has this credible uh, quality of generosity granting space granting the right for every entity to live but also delighting in the knowledge that when uh, released even the darkest most difficult impressions experiences in and of themselves grant release so so in a sense it all becomes more and more um, like a magic show like a like an epiphany this strengthening of samadhi then really is 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 a fundamental part of the training the overall monastic training then premised on this idea of sila this idea of restraint of just holding oneself through centuries of dhamma talks and, um, millions of meetings that you're not allowed to say anything in that don't, aren't going the way you want and, um, through I am exaggerating but uh, the, the, but that's the impression, this sort of endless um, um, holding of oneself in situations you don't want to be in. The classic was uh, breakfast, breakfast, breakfast time. Finally, after you haven't eaten since 11 o'clock the day before, it's finally breakfast. And, you know, at Amaravati, there's dozens of you so you're lucky to get your porridge at some point you finally get your porridge and you finally get a few spoonfuls of muesli into it which takes ages to come to you when Ajahn Sumedha decides it's time to give a morning reflection (laughs) 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 and of course when Ajahn Sumedha gives a morning reflection it's not polite to be stuffing your face in the middle of it so down goes the porridge and it's uh, time for sleep uh, or whatever not that I mean Ajahn Sumedho is my teacher don't get me wrong but it's the waiting because in any other situation I just stuff this I'm going to have my breakfast you know you can't. You're, you're being held, All, especially around food. There's a lot, a lot of control, a lot of restraining around food because you know, usually it's just hand in the fridge, hand in the mouth, job done. Um, but uh, <laughs> not in the monastery. It's like, you know, it takes twenty minutes just to 
lay everything out and then you've got to wait to be called and then the food's got to be offered and then the senior people have to go and then then you don't get what you want. People slop all sorts of stuff in there that you didn't even want and you end up with a ladle full of custard on top of it. And then you wander back pretending to be thankful for what's been offered. (laughs) And then, um, um, you know... Then all the junior people have to go, and they're not, you know, all the junior people, and then, then so, and then 150 people from Asia turn up with a truck full of socks that they need to offer the monastery, and then you have to go through all these ceremonies and chanting and talk, and meanwhile you're watching, you're sitting there watching your food melt, and. Uh, it brings up this frustration, you know. Basically, at the end of the day, you're like a you're like an insect on a pin. If you if if you struggle, you know, you either suffer or you let go. It's just, uh, and after 15 years, you start to let go. <laughs> and so you begin to find this sort of like, however it is, is okay. It's like you begin to notice actually. This really is a total drag, but actually it's absolutely fine, you know, big deal. But that's what they call knocking the edges off. So, yeah, and you know what's coming. This is part of mindfulness training, you know, this is what's involved. So, you know, when when you encounter frustrations in your life, no one's trying to pretend that you're going to feel good. You're not going to feel good. But you can restrain your reaction. You can restrain <laughs> resorting to some sort of indulgence, whatever. You, can, you don't need to make grand gestures like, you know, I'm going to eliminate dinner for life or anything. It's just like, you know, um, I'm only going to have one piece of toast in the morning, not two or three. Or I'm only going to have one cup of tea. Make little little chip away in little ways and then when when the feeling comes up that you know of wanting that is so disturbing to the mind go towards the feeling if you can and just say is it that bad you know maybe you can actually be with it and uh, it's not it's not you don't have to become it you don't have to be defined by it this is the cultivation of mindfulness And the last then of the indriyas that can emerge then as a result of that stability of mind, which is like Kitty Saros, I love that image of Kitty Saros, is like a camera that is steady, a camera that is not moving, it's not agitated. You begin to get this sort of clear picture of what's before you. And the, the, the last of the indriyas then is, is wisdom, panya, wisdom. It's nothing to do with owls. Or you know our general idea of, of sort of wisdom, where you know you know it's not about accumulating a lot of lot of information. It's the um, catalyzing, the actualizing of the, this Buddha potentiality that exists in each one of us, which. It's, an, it's a facet of awareness itself, which is this pure intelligence that, that uh, understands what it's experiencing fully, understands it. You can never 
Wisdom is only ever now. It's not like something you carry with you that you got today that you then is the same tomorrow. It's only ever now. Um, um, so you can never be in possession of it because wisdom understands life as process. Life is flow. Life is movement. Life is what it is. It just it just is what it is, and uh, and it it um, realizes itself through this the contact with the existence that's made through these other indriyas. It's uh, it's not self-generated. It's a force in the universe. It's actually a substance. You could say it's the it's a, it's born out of this essential nature of mind, which is a substance. And I find that very helpful because I sometimes used to think, well, wisdom and 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 all of these, you know, this essential nature of mind is some sort of it's something way out there, but it's a substance, a very very refined substance. But you can tangibly sense it, and you can scan your own experience and look for it, because you know we. We, we can we can abdicate so much authority for our own spirituality that we sometimes don't even notice it's there because we think we've got to be told what it is and actually all you need to do is see what it is for yourself. Retrieve, you know, and you begin to retrieve your own authority and and, and So all these four facets, uh, they all feed into this and culminate in this singularity of mindfulness. So when we say mindfulness, we say like it's a, it's a refuge or whatever, but it's, it's many-faceted. It has all of these different qualities within it. It's not just one thing. And mindfulness then will, in a sense, allow these different qualities of mind to come through appropriate to the circumstance that's arising. Sometimes you'll be fierce, sometimes you'll be soft, sometimes you'll be hard, sometimes you'll, you know, you'll retreat, sometimes you'll be flexible, sometimes you'll be inflexible, um, you know, If you're really mindful, then it's quite likely that however you are is is being determined by what is before you and is in, in relationship to it. It's not born out of a reaction to what is before you. So I'm kind of kind of wind head towards winding up because there's only so much you can absorb in an evening but um, I just wanted to lay out some of the, lay out these little stories and ideas about mindfulness for you to unpack it a bit to try and um, kind of cl- give you some sense of, of of 
the fact that it's a, it's a lifetime's process. You know, it's 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 uh, you can start wherever you are. You know, if you think it's just a if, if it's just a te- just a sort of a, a sort of narrow method for you, then but it will become it will even that will become these other things. You'll begin to notice you're being pulled and into other things. You may not know why exactly what's happening, or but you know it's all part of this development, this filling out, this maturing, this uh, um, uh, letting go and entrusting oneself in into the heart of existence and discovering, you know, our fullest potential. Which is surely a good thing. So, uh, for those thoughts, for your consideration tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.